Good morning. I'm Aiden McClish. I hope you are all doing well. Today's passage comes from John 2:23 through 3:21. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. For if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank thanks you. be to God. Well, thanks so much, Aiden. Um, you know, if there was a movie about the book of John or if somebody kind of wrote this book in a narrative, I think you're supposed to pay attention to Nicodemus. He's a really interesting character in the book. He shows up here, of course, most famously in chapter 3. But he also shows up in chapter 7 and in chapter 19. And I think we can learn a lot from him. Particularly in this passage, we can learn a lot about the heart of a man. We can learn a lot about the birth of a man. And we can learn a lot about the way of a man. So let's start with the heart uh, of a man. 
When they added the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible, it helped us, right? We're grateful for the chapter and verse divisions. It's nice to be able to say, you know, go to this verse. You can, you can, we can all look at the same passage at the same time very easily. But the chapter and verse divisions also, they're not inspired. They also kind of create some breaks in the narrative flow that sometimes can be unhelpful, that, that sometimes can cause us to miss things. The reason that we started at the end of chapter two here is, is I think that John is doing something really important. Notice how chapter two ends. Jesus has been doing these signs, these, these signs, and it says that people are believing in him. Now, the signs of Jesus, there's many ways to understand what he's doing through these signs, but one of the things you have to understand that the signs are is their, their signs, their little signs, their little signals about his kingdom. They're, they're foretastes, if you will, about the kingdom of Christ. So in the kingdom of Christ, for example, no one's going to have ailments. We'll, we'll have a renewed body. So one of the things that you see Jesus doing is what? He's healing people. He's healing the blind. He's healing people from their ailments. In the kingdom of Christ, uh, for example, we won't be plagued by Satan or by evil forces. So what does Jesus do? He's casting out demons. He's, he's giving people little tastes, little foretastes of what the kingdom will be like in his earthly signs. So that's a whole another sermon. But these people see what he's doing, these little evidences of the kingdom. They're amazed. And it says, now this is fascinating. Hope you don't miss this. So people are believing in him. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in a man. And then, of course, chapter three begins, there was a man. Well, what's going on here? And I think this passage actually tells us a lot about what is in the heart of a man. What is going on in our hearts, the hearts of men and women? I played tennis you know, the other week for the first time in a really long time, and I have a head tennis racket um, by the company head, like, you know, I don't know if, you know, different Spalding, I don't know who makes tennis rackets, but I have one by head, you know, you know what heads, uh, slogan is, you know what head slogan is? It's not, we make really good tennis rackets. It's not tennis rackets made to last. It is the power of you head, the power of you. So you get that tennis rack and you're like, I really am powerful, aren't I? I am something. I have a head tennis racket. You know, Gillette, this kind of is happening all over the place. You know, Gillette, their, their slogan used to be the best a man can be. Gillette, remember that commercial? Yeah, that Matt Papa knows it. If hymns don't work out for you, Matt, you could be like a TV jingle guy really well. Gillette, the best a man can get. Um, they, they recently changed their slogan to the best men can be, right? Gillette, the best men can be, right? It's, it's, it's not like we sell really good razors. It's you buy this and you will be great. Isn't that interesting? The, the, these company slogans, and this is happening a lot, they're no longer actually about the products, but they're about the purchaser. They're about the people buying the products. 
Who do you want to be? The power of you, right? Get this tennis racket. You want to be the best man? Use this razor. I've been thinking a lot about this this year. This desire, these companies have realized something. They're smart, right? These ad wizards are smart. They realize something about the heart of a man. They're they're tapping into something about the heart of a man. They, They know that we want to be righteous. They know that we want to be justified. They know that we want to be something. And, and so they're, they're pushing out these symbols. You want to be somebody? You want to be powerful? You want to be powerful? You want to be righteous? You want to be the best? Buy our product. They know what's in the heart of a man. And I've been noticing it. That, you know, that, that we, are, we live in a very spiritually charged age. You know, even things like masks, Right? It's beyond like safety protocol, right? I mean, we want to wear masks because we want to be safe. We want to have good safety protocol. But man, there's been this whole debate, right? It's the spiritually charged thing. If you if you do this, if you wear your mask, you're saying this about yourself. If you don't do it and you're refusing to do it, you say this about yourself. We're communicating through symbols and signs all the time. There's a lot of spiritual energy. We're all looking for justification. We're all looking for something or someone to make us right. Even the way that people talk a lot about a, a lot about a cultural or political movements, they 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 have kind of taken on a religious tone, right? Uh, you know, I used to not see the world rightly, but then I woke up and now I understood these things, and now I'm on this path, and now I'm doing these things. It, it sounds a lot like a religious experience. And if you've been kind of watching this with me, how the culture's kind of been moving in this direction, I think you are ready to read John 2 and 3 rightly. This was a very charged time. Uh, N.T. Wright wrote a book called Simply Jesus. I don't know if you've read it. It's a good book. But he talks about the world around the time of Jesus as the perfect storm. Y'all remember the movie with George Clooney and Marky Mark? Um, the perfect storm. And so what, what happened in that movie, it's a true story. It tells a story about this fishing boat and there was this approaching cold front coming down. They were, they were off the, the like Newfoundland, Massachusetts, all that area. Um, so there was a cold front coming down from Canada and then right off of the coast of kind of Newfoundland, there was this high pressure, this growing high pressure system. And just those two things would have created a huge storm. But it became the perfect storm because at the same time, there was a hurricane coming up from the south, bringing all this warm air. So you have cold air, warm air, high pressure system. And of course, what do you get? The perfect storm. And and so N.T. Wright uses this as an analogy for what the time was like in the time of Jesus. And it's kind of the same way you had the Romans. And the Romans were kind of encroaching on the world. They were the new power structure of the day. And, you know, people were nervous about the Romans because the Romans were kind of taking over everything. They controlled the roads. They controlled the taxes. Uh, they didn't, they weren't really grounded in religious thing. And people thought, oh man, the Romans are getting so much power, but the Romans didn't really stop. They were kind of creeping down the Canadian coast, you know, if, if you will, to, to go with N.T. Wright's analogy. They were, they were moving in and people feel like we're being strangled out. The Romans are getting too much power. 
And so at the same time, you had the Roman front coming. You had the Jewish high-pressure system that was nervous about this. Uh, People thought, man, our religious leaders are selling out. The Romans have control of everything. They're watching us all the time. We're totally suppressed by them. And and, and so the Jewish people were very hungry for uh, some sort of Messiah, someone that would set them free. What's interesting, around the time of Jesus, if if you studied this, there were a lot of messianic figures, right? So Jesus isn't the only kind of messianic figure that popped up around his time. There was this big messianic kind of desire that people had. They wanted someone to save them. And and occasionally there'd be this figure or that figure that would pop up and say, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm going I'm to restore Israel. And people would start following him. And then the Romans would crush him and people would get upset about that. And then somebody else would kind of pop up and the, the Romans would crush him. So it's a really interesting time. You have the Romans kind of moving in. You have this high pressure system with the Jews. And then to quote N.T. Wright, then you have the hurricane. And the hurricane is the actual wind of God, the, the actual interaction with God's kingdom coming in at this very time. This was the moment, this high pressure time is the moment when Jesus shows up. And of course, what does Jesus do? He, he begins doing these things that people have never seen before. They've never seen before these powerful signs and everybody wants a little Jesus and everybody wants Jesus to be with them. Everybody wants Jesus to do something, right? Some people want Jesus to take up a sword and fight the Romans, to back them up. Some people want Jesus to call out the corruption that, are, that exists in the actual Jewish leaders. Some people wanted Jesus to get the economy going again, to restore the wealth of Solomon. Everybody wants something from Jesus. And you know what? It's not too different than where we are now, right? Everybody wants Jesus on their team. You may, you may want the worldly wisdom Jesus, right? The Jesus that brings good wisdom, that helps you make good decisions, that helps you in business, that helps you be a good uh, wife or mother or father or husband, that gives you some wisdom. Or maybe you want the prosperity Jesus, right? The Jesus that if you just have enough faith in him, he makes you healthier, he makes you wealthier. Some people want the social justice warrior Jesus or the American values Jesus, The point is, this is how a lot of people come at Jesus. They recognize that he's powerful, and they say, I need his power to help me. I need his power to advance my agenda. And you know what? You see this all throughout the book of John. Everybody comes at Jesus like this. Everybody's coming at Jesus, and they need this, or they need this, or they need this. But over and over and over again, look at verse 24. This is a powerful verse. These people are coming to him. They're believing in him. They need something from him. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he knows what's in your heart. He doesn't need somebody to tell him, he knows. But here's what's interesting. Now begin chapter three. But there was a man. So you you see what John's doing here? Can you catch even the language? He knew what was in man. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He knew it was in man. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, 
Rabbi, we know that you are from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we've talked about the heart of a man. This brings me to the second point, the birth of a man. Now, my whole life, for a long time in my life, I've heard people preach John 3 as if Jesus was instructing Nicodemus something that he must go do. You must be born again. You need to go be born again. In fact, people talk about the new birth or being born again as something that you kind of go get. You go get born again. You got to go to the church and you get born again, just like you go to CVS and you get a toothbrush, right? You got to go get the born again. You got to go get this product. You got to go get saved. Langston Hughes, uh, in his autobiography, The Big Seed, tells this great story that's kind of like this. He was at a revival as a child, and they were sitting there on the mourner's bench, and he and this other little boy, Wesley, and everybody's praying for them. Everybody's, you know, wanting them to be born again. And finally, Wesley looks at Langston Hughes and he says, it's hot, I'm tired, let's go be born again, come on. So Wesley goes and the way Langston writes it, Wesley goes and gets born again. Is this, is this what Jesus is talking about here? Is this what the new birth is like? Is it something you go get? Is it something that you go grab a hold of? Yeah, for a lot of my life, I think people have taught this where it's Jesus telling Nicodemus something that he had to go and do. But I actually think that John 3 is really about Jesus telling Nicodemus something that has happened. We just read that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of the man. But then Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Nicodemus doesn't really need anything from Jesus. I mean, he's a religious ruler. If you just read the whole Gospel of John, you know who hates Jesus? You know who's totally threatened by Jesus? You know who wants nothing to do with Jesus? It's the Pharisees. Everywhere, at every turn, they do not like him. His class, Nicodemus's class, is not favorable toward Jesus, but he can't help himself. <laughs> He comes to Jesus and they said, there's something going on here. We know that you are from God. Every other Pharisee comes, looks at Jesus and says, this man must be possessed by a demon. This man must be put out. We got to get rid of this man. But Nicodemus says, no, I see something in you. I know that you are from God. I believe what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is not you need to go do something, but rather, Nicodemus, something has happened to you. You are seeing. You, you, your eyes are being opened. The Spirit of God is blowing on you, Nicodemus. And again, the reason I believe this is, is the text has just said that Jesus did not entrust himself to anyone because he knew it was in their heart. And yet here, he is totally entrusting himself to Nicodemus, this guy of the class of Pharisees that hates Jesus the most. Verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes 
You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I believe this is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, the wind is blowing on you. The wind is blowing on you, Nicodemus. Your eyes are being opened. You are seeing who I am. And I just want to say this to you. The wind is blowing on some of you. The Spirit of God is at work in some of you. You are being drawn in. You are seeing Jesus. There's inevitably here a lot of people, some people, who come at Jesus like most people do. You've come today to get a little Jesus to fit him into your agenda. You want a little wisdom. Maybe you want God to bless you. You want Jesus to reaffirm these convictions that you hold, to reaffirm your way of life. Jesus is an add-on for you. He's a nice little add-on to what you have going on. But some of you, and I pray many of you, are coming to Jesus like Nicodemus, actually willing to risk something to follow him. You actually can't wait to hear from him because you, you know he's from God. You know he has the words of life, even if you don't understand everything about it. You know, even if you're coming to Jesus saying, look, I don't understand everything, but here's what I know. You are from God. And this is evidence of what we call in Christianity the new birth, the new life, regeneration, right? It's, it's reorienting, it's redirecting, it's reformation, but it's more than that. It's regeneration. That is a powerful word. What is Christianity like? Is Christianity like getting a new job? Anybody change jobs this year, right? This is a big year for job change. That's, that's crazy. I mean, some people are like, man, I was doing this, but now I'm doing this. I never saw myself doing this, but now I'm doing this. That can be very redirecting, reorienting, Anybody move this year, right? Man, is moving not so hard, especially if you like move towns. Some of you have moved to Atlanta and you don't know anybody and you're having to get a whole new thing going on. You got to get a whole new set of friends and you're getting used to the city. That's incredibly changing. Is, is, is becoming a Christian like moving, like getting a new house, getting a new city? No, becoming a Christian is like getting a new life. It's being born again. This is incredibly radical. The new birth, regeneration. And here's the deal. This is something that God has to do. It's something that God has to do, but it's something, this new birth, it, 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 it may start small, but it's something that as we pursue the Lord grows in us, this new life. In our belief statement, we talk about regeneration We say for believers, salvation begins with regeneration, the new birth, in which God imparts new life into a spiritually dead person. God imparts new life into a spiritually dead person. It may be subtle. It may be dramatic. You know, I love the stories. I mean, one of the things that has so reaffirmed my faith is going back and reading church history, Like, go read Confessions by Augustine, written 1,600 years ago. 
And you find in this, this guy living in a different place in a different time, writing in a different language 1,600 years ago, you will find your, your own narrative in there if you're in Christ. God is working on this man's heart in the same way that he's worked on my heart. I feel like I'm reading my own journals, not that I can write as well as Augustine writes. But I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing the same kind of things that he's experiencing. And he talks a lot about this. You know, this was a man, he was far from the Lord. This is Augustine. He was, you know, he was probably the most influential Christian next to the Apostle Paul. And yet, you know, he was a womanizer. He abandoned a child at one point in his life. Some very not good stuff. And, and yet, as, as God continues to draw him in, he says at one point, he writes, and now you set me face to face with myself, the new birth, that I might see how ugly I was, how crooked and sordid, bespotted and ulcerous. I looked and I loathed myself. This, this idea of repentance, he's broken in his sin. A long, for a long while, he wrestles with this. And finally, he one day he tells the story he's reading in Romans chapter 13, and he says, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom and doubt vanished away. He saw the gospel. He saw the certainty he had in Christ. He was drawn in. He was reassured. This is the new birth. I love the way Charles Wesley puts it in the song, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and in nature's night, but then my eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth and followed thee. Your conversion, your new birth experience may have been something dramatic, but I want to hear, I want to hear you say, it may be something's more subtle. It may be something small. The wind may have started to blow more subtly on your heart, but there's a shift and you know it. You're being drawn in. This is like Nicodemus. You know, every other Pharisee, when Jesus challenges them, you know what they do? When Jesus challenges them and he makes them mad, and he says something confusing like he does here in this conversation with Nicodemus, you know what they do? They get mad. They run away. They say, let's put him to death. Every other Pharisee, when Jesus challenges them, they hate it. They want to kill him, but not Nicodemus. He just wants more. And Jesus entrusts himself to him. Nicodemus has a lot to risk. He could lose his job. He could lose all of his opportunities to advance. So he, this first meeting, he's meeting here with Jesus at night. But you know what? As I said, Nicodemus keeps showing up. Later in John 7, I love this story. This is a great story. The Pharisees had sent guards to go and arrest Jesus. Okay, just think about this. These guards are sent out to go and arrest Jesus but they start listening to the teaching of Jesus and they, the guards, the people that are there to arrest him are mesmerized by Jesus. So they go back to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like, where's Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him. And they say, man, you're not gonna believe what this guy is saying. It's so amazing. Of course, the Pharisees are outraged. They get so mad at these guards. But you know who shows up in that passage? You know, kind of comes in again to the story. Nicodemus. It says in verse 50 of chapter 7, Nicodemus, who had gone before to Jesus, this is referring to chapter 3, 
and who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's just reminding them about the law. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. He's a little more bold this time. He's a little further in. He's he's willing to speak publicly about his affinity for Jesus. But then Nicodemus shows up again. Only this time, it's at the most crucial moment. It's in John 19. Jesus has died on the cross. And everyone, even his followers, everyone has abandoned him. And it's Passover. It's Passover meaning that no one wants to be around a dead body at Passover. But where is Nicodemus? This is John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus. It's interesting in John, he always says, remember the guy from chapter three, who earlier had come to Jesus, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound in linen cloth with spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in this place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden of tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed, close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Just think about what's going on here. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, the very class of people that had Jesus put to death, that stirred up the crowds. And now on the night of Jesus's greatest moment, after he's died on the cross, when everyone's getting away from this criminal, who is showing up to prepare his body for burial? It's Nicodemus. I love this. This is so a picture of the drawing power of Jesus. The wind of God had drawn him in. The the new life had drawn him in. This new nature was taking over this man that should have been so hardened to the way of Christ, the new birth. And this brings me to the final point, which is the way of a man. Here's the question, right? If the new birth is not something that you go do, but something that happens to you, right? Something that God is doing, if the the wind is blowing where it wishes, the question then becomes, well, how do I know? You should be asking that question right now. If the way to know God is by the new birth and the new birth is something that God does, you should be asking the question, well, how do I know if this has come to me? How do I know if this wind is blowing on me? How do I know that that I am born again? How do I know that this is happening? And I think the answer is found in verse 19. Look at it with me. It says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that, is clear, so, that, uh, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the question. How do you know? When the light shines in, what do you do? When you're confronted with the truth of God, what do you do? Do you run? Do you pull back? Do you excuse yourself? Or do you run in? When someone challenges you with the word of the Lord, what do you do? Do you say, that guy's an idiot? He doesn't know what he's talking about? Do you find someone that'll reaffirm what you believe? Or do you come further into the light? Even if you don't understand, do you seek understanding? When the light shines in, what do you do? Do you pull back? Or do you run in? This is the verdict. This is what it's saying. This is the judgment. This is how you know. When the light shines, how do you know who's with the Lord? How do you know who, how do you know who really understands this gospel? I mean, the previous passage is this most famous passage that God, the only God, has given his only son to be our substitute, to die in our place. He's given his life for us on the cross so that we might come into fellowship with God, so that we may come into this light. And here's the verdict. When the light shines, what do you do? Do you really even want the light? Do you really even want this light? What do you do when the light shines? That's how you know. Now, you may not understand. Again, you may not have, just like Nicodemus, there was a lot of questions he had. How can a man be born? How can a man be born when he is old? How does any of this work? You may be sitting right there and saying, I don't know a lot about this Jesus guy, but I just know I need to know more. I just know I need to get closer to him. That's evidence that the wind is blowing on you, that God is drawing you in. What do you do when the light shines? As, as we close today, I, I want to give you a chance to be confronted with the light. I want to give you a chance to be confronted with the light shining on us. And <clears throat> we are going to have a time of communion. And communion is one of those moments where you have to come face to face with the light of God, with the truth of God. This, this little meal that Christians take, it tells us a lot about ourselves, but it also tells us a lot about God. When you take these elements, when you hold these elements here in a few moments, it's saying to you something. It's saying to you, you need this. <laughs> you need this. You need this. You know, in John 6, Jesus had a kind of a moment like this. It was a confrontation. People had started following him. And he started saying, he started teaching in a different way. He started saying to the people that were following him, look, you're coming after me because I give you meals. You're coming after me because you want to fit me into your agenda. And then he said, I tell you what, you have no place with me 
unless you're willing to identify with me, unless you're willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't know what he was saying. What is this guy talking about? He was saying, are you really, are you coming at me saying, hey, Jesus, will you identify with me? Will you get on board with what I'm doing? Or are you coming at Jesus saying, look, I don't know who you are exactly. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I just, wherever you are, I wanna get on board with you. I wanna get in with you. I, I wanna order my life around you. And so as we take this meal, it's a sign to us that we need this. That, that our lives, that our way, that our agenda is broken. And that only Jesus can heal us. And only Jesus can heal us. So it says something about, it says something about us, but it also says something about God. And, and what it says about God is what this passage says so beautifully, that even broken people like us, even though Jesus, here's the deal, Jesus doesn't need to be told does it need no one to tell him what was in the heart of man because he knows what's in your heart. Jesus knows what's in your heart. Jesus knows how selfish and self-oriented, how proud, how deceived we can be. And yet, and yet, he still says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. This meal tells us something about ourselves, but it also reminds us something of God. And so as these elements are being passed, if you are a believer, I'm gonna ask the deacons to begin passing them. If you are a believer, if you've confessed Christ, if you wanna come into his light today, if you've let your salvation be known, then I invite you to take these elements and hold on to them as we're gonna take them corporately here in just a few moments. Now, some of you may be here today and you don't know if you're a Christian or not, right? You, you don't know really, am I really a follower of Christ? If I really identified with him or am I just the kind of person that has asked Jesus to identify with me? I'm gonna ask if, if, you, if even if you're confused about that, if that's just kind of going in your head, just let the elements pass today. Just let this be a moment to you where you just meditate on these things. Consider what's been said today and, and after the service, you're gonna have an opportunity. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to answer any questions you may have. Uh, but let's meditate on these things. Let's meditate on the life, on the light of Christ as these elements are passed. And then we'll take them corporately together here in just a few moments.